Well, welcome uh, to Redeemer. I know that Katie welcomed you. Let me welcome you as well. We've got uh, just some fun things the next couple weeks as we start a new series today. Uh, so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to the Old Testament uh, book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 9. You can get a, a bookmark in both of those chapters. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, today we start three weeks uh, through a series that we are calling The King is Coming. And that's going to fit really well into our Advent series of four weeks in December called The King Is Here. And so what we're doing for these next three Sundays, uh, looking at The King Is Coming, is we're going to rewind and get back to the Old Testament uh, and look at three different prophecies uh, where God kind of invaded history and spoke about things very specifically uh, that were to come in the future. Uh, most of those hundreds, if not a thousand years before they would happen, God knows the future exists in the future and predict some things that are coming. Uh, and so what we're very go going to focus in on is not just all of the different prophecies. There's so many prophecies in the Bible. Uh, over 1,600 different prophecies of things that were predicted before they would happen. Some of those would be uh, rise and fall of kingdoms or uh, ta uh, temples that would be destroyed or uh, just so many different things that are prophesied. But uh, over 300 of those prophecies uh, in the Old Testament have to to do specifically with what the Old Testament would call the Messiah or the Christ, basically predicting Jesus, predicting how he will arrive, uh, how we will recognize him. I think you would agree with me that it's pretty important that we would be able to know if God is sending a Savior into the world. We would be able to recognize him and know who he is, and it can't just be because somebody said so. It can't just be because somebody shows up on the scene and says, I am he, right? There needs to be some other way to show um, just the, the validity of the Christ. So there's uh, there's prophecies about how he will arrive, when he will arrive, where he will be born, uh, what he will be, what he will do, what he will uh, even look like in certain ways, how he will die, how he will rise. But for the next three weeks, we're going to focus in uh, on a few different prophecies about Jesus. Uh, and I think it's important for you to know, uh, because every week we have not just people that are uh, coming to worship, but we have people that are curious about Jesus, that are curious about uh, Christianity. Uh, and it's a it's it's really important to know that prophecy is one of the many things that sets the Bible apart from every other book that claims to be the Word of God. Uh, like no other book even comes close to having prophecy. Things where God has spoken and He has said something will happen or something will come true and over and over and over God has proven that He tells the truth and that He in fact has the power to do what He says He will do. And so not only is prophecy supposed to inform us, I think prophecy is supposed to inspire us, inspire uh, our trust in God, our trust in God's word, that if he has said something, uh, not only does he have the intention, but he has the power and the ability to make it happen, to make it true, and to make it come to pass. Uh, so you might be glad to know we're not going to look at all 1,600 prophecies. Uh, we're not even going to have time to look at all 300 about Jesus, um, but we're going to look at a handful, and I hope um, that they that they do both of those things. I hope they inform us, um, but I also hope they inspire us towards greater trust in God's Word uh, and greater comfort to know that He's in control, that what He says goes, what He says happens, that Jesus tells the truth. In Isaiah, uh, sometimes it's easy to read not just the Bible, but especially the Old Testament from our perspective and knowing what we know. Uh, and, and sometimes that's more helpful because we have more information than the original 
hearers did. Um, but sometimes that puts us at a little bit of a deficit because uh, we don't necessarily feel the, the angst and the trouble and the problems that the original hearers of certain things would have felt. And so for a moment, I want to kind of help us to understand what was going on in the world, and especially in the Jewish nation at the time that Isaiah was prophesying. Um, because that's really helpful to understand just the weightiness uh, to the hope uh, of the prophecies of the coming Christ. Uh, Isaiah it was a prophet um, that, that prophesied through about four different kings uh, over Judah uh, during about 750 B.C., um, so he would have prophesied during the reign of King Uzziah, which you know about in Isaiah chapter 6, and through a few in Hezekiah and Manasseh, uh, and um, probably towards the end of his life, well, at the very end of his life, uh, he was martyred uh, for what he was saying and for who he was as a prophet of God, probably uh, was sawn in half. They took a rough saw and they cut his body in half, and that's how he died. That's what most theologians would say. Uh, Hebrews 12, 11 and 12 is talking about when it says some of the, the faithful ones in the past were sawn into probably Isaiah. And he is speaking to uh, the nation of Israel that were in a really dark time, both like spiritually for them as a people, in so many ways they had turned their back on God. Uh, they, weren't, they didn't care so much about obedience. They didn't care. They didn't love the Lord their God. They could have with with great sincerity, just prayed that prayer of confession that we have prayed that they had not loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They had not loved their neighbor. They were still going through the motions and providing sacrifices, but it was uh, incredibly heartless, and Isaiah would say incredibly hypocritical, that they would come into the temple and sacrifice things, but there was nothing taking place in their heart. They weren't being stored up towards, uh, towards love for God. They weren't realizing what that sacrifice meant, that that was actually a picture that the Christ would be sacrificed in our place. And so there wasn't anything worshipful. They would just come into the temple, go through the motions, maybe even contribute some money, sacrifice some animals, completely unmoved, and move on to their life that was very sinful because they had turned their heart from God. That, that's what had taken place in a great part in the hearts of, of most of the Jewish people that Isaiah is preaching to. Uh, but it, like you turn out to the greater world and there was a lot of chaos in the world around them. It was a pretty uh, tumultuous time. The Assyrians uh, were on the move. They were on the march. They were conquering kingdoms, taking a lot of people into captivity. And uh, the, the Israeli people knew that they were just, it was just a matter of time until the Assyrians came for them. And so they lived in just constant fear and terror that uh, the Assyrians would come and would um, take, their, uh, t take their freedom and would take their family and would spread them out, split them up, put them in uh, different places away from their homes so that they would be uh, enslaved as captives to the Assyrians. And, and so like you could, you could understand where if, if that's what you were experiencing and that's what you were afraid of all the time, that this unbelievable prophecy of hope in Christ would have meant the world for them because they were looking for hope, they were looking for stability, they were looking for peace, they were looking for the things that humans were designed by God to have, and they were struggling, at least on the surface, to find it. And that's where we drop in with Isaiah. Um, it, it, they were a people that desperately needed hope and peace. And Isaiah is... Um, 
probably the most comprehensive, he, he provides the most comprehensive prophetic view of the Christ, uh, including his, his birth, through his ministry, even to his life and death and resurrection. Uh, you, you see so much of the just greatest picture of who Christ is and what he would do in Isaiah. Um, you know, Isaiah is one of many different prophecies, as we have already established, about Jesus, and they reach all the way back to the first page of your Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, God promises that he is going to send someone, they will be the seed of a woman, and they will crush Satan. And over time, those very generic prophecies uh, get more and more specific. So there's a promise in Genesis 3 that's very vague. Oh, it's going to be a man. That's about all they knew. He's going to crush Satan. And, and then as you walk throughout the Old Testament, you find out not only is this Messiah, the Christ, going to be a man. He's going to be a Jewish man. There's a promise that he's going to come from the family of Abraham. He gets even narrower. He says that there, there's 12 different tribes of Israel, and the Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah. Uh, he will have the right to sit on and reign from uh, the throne of David. And then later on, it gets even more specific. He's going to be born in this little hick town called Bethlehem, and there would be a forerunner that goes before him that's a very powerful preacher preparing the way, and there's all these uh, things. You think about it, or I do, uh, kind of as a funnel. And throughout the Old Testament, it just gets more and more and more and more specific until you get to Isaiah chapter 7. So if you're in Isaiah and you're excited about Jesus and you're ready to read from the prophet Isaiah, let me hear you say ready. ready. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 11 through 14. Isaiah is speaking to these broken people who have a lot of fear, need hope, need peace. He says, ask a sign of the Lord your God. He's talking about a sign so that they could recognize the Messiah and the Christ when he, in fact, shows up. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. And But Ahaz said, he says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. But he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself, God himself, will take it upon him. He says he will give you a sign. This, this is Isaiah saying God does not want us to be confused when the Messiah shows up, so he will give you a sign whether you ask for it or not. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, rarely is, th like this normally is just relegated to December. So we're like in uncharted waters, right? Uh, preaching about Christmas text in November. But like, w there it is. He says, the Lord himself will give you a sign and a few things about that sign. Uh, virgin, son, Emmanuel, okay? Uh, that this Christ will be born from a virgin, which, you know, if we're thinking about a funnel, like there's a lot of people that are have been males, right, over the years. A lot of people that have been Jewish males. A lot of Jewish males from the tribe of Judah. A lot of Jewish males from the tribe of Judah born in Bethlehem. But when you pull out the born of a virgin, gets real narrow real quick. Anybody else? 
Like, why is that? Why is it such an important theological truth and a miracle that God decided to bring Jesus into the world uh, through a virgin? A couple things that you need to know about. Uh, number one, what you, what you know is that God is invading humanity and the Christ is going to be both fully God and fully man, son of man and son of God. And the way that God designs to do that is to bring Jesus into the world as a human being, being born of a woman, yet he was not conceived through a man and a wife uh, because what you see theologically would have happened is that uh, this like sin nature that every person in this room has inherited has been passed down from father to child and through this line. So Jesus gets to invade humanity without inheriting a sinful nature because he's born of a virgin. But the second thing that's really important uh, is that Jesus was coming in as a mediator. Right, as a mediator who would be the only uniquely qualified mediator between God and man. I think about it oftentimes, um, not necessarily through the term of mediator, but uh, translator. I don't know if you've ever traveled anywhere across the world, maybe to a place where you just did not understand the language. Uh, let's say that you go on a trip and you end up in Japan. Well, if you're going to function, let's say you only know English and you're interacting with somebody that only knows Japanese, what you need is a, is a translator, right, or a, a mediator of sorts, and they have to be able to understand both. They have to be able to understand what you're saying and, and, and translate it and speak to someone in both English and Japanese. Jesus had to get into humanity and be able to, quote unquote, to, to speak the language of men, speak the language of God, to fully be human so that he might live a life in our place, die a death in our place, and present an offering on behalf of humanity, being human himself. But he also had to be God. So he can he, he is the prophet that speaks for God. He is 100% God and man, the only one who uniquely is the translator for us, the Son of God, Son of Man. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. That's how God decided to accomplish that shall conceive and bear a son. That's a shout back all the way to Genesis chapter 3 when it says that, um, that, that this young singular male will come from Eve and will crush Satan's head. And then it says, and he will be called Emmanuel. Everybody say Emmanuel. Everybody say it one more time. Oh, what, a, what an important word. What an unbelievable truth. The, the truth that's underneath this word and that's wrapped up in this word, Emmanuel, is one of the most foundational things to the Christian faith. It means God with us. It's the incarnation. that This, this prophecy is that you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, what he is not saying, and I want to show it to you here in a moment in Matthew chapter 1, that he, he's not saying when he shows up, when, when this son is born of a virgin, you're going to name him Emmanuel. That's different. Because they didn't name him Emmanuel. What did they name him? You are crushing it today. Uh, it, it doesn't say you, you're going to name him Emmanuel. It's basically, if this is translated uh, very accurately, it's like you will call, he will be called uh, Emmanuel. So let's fast forward 750 years. Uh, and, and mind you, like that's three times uh, the entire history of our country. And it's like God is very accurate. He's very 
precise. And so from when he makes this promise, let's fast forward to Matthew chapter 1. You're welcome to turn there. It's also going to be here on the screen for you. Because this is when this prophecy happened. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Matthew recounts and he says, when his mother Mary who was a young, probably an early teenage, very poor Jewish single woman, which that is a whole sermon in and of itself. Just God uses some really interesting, special people um, that, that maybe none of us would have chosen to do something miraculous. And he chooses this young, faithful woman named Mary. When she'd been betrothed, so she was engaged to her husband. They weren't married yet, but that was the plan. They were, and it's not like an engagement with us. It was a legally binding thing, uh, much like a marriage would be for us. They had to legally bind each other in inside of this betrothment, and then they would uh, also be legally bound through marriage. And so they uh, had been engaged and says that they'd been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, meaning physically, before they had sexual relations, uh, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband, it says, who was her betrothed husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. Why? Because when his fiance shows up pregnant, he probably didn't believe her when she said, I'm still a virgin, right? Which, can we agree that would be pretty hard to believe. Like if you're engaged to somebody and they wind up pregnant and they say, well, you don't, you don't understand. <laughs> I'm still a virgin. It was God, right? Like that would be fairly difficult to believe. And so God understood that. So he sends, a, he sends an angel and a messenger down to make sure that Joseph knew Mary was telling the truth. Verse 20. Uh, but as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, that's important. It means Joseph was from the uh, lineage of David, so his heirs could rightly sit and rule on, his, on David's throne. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins, and all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, which is Matthew saying, this is what Isaiah was saying in Isaiah 7, and then he quotes it, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So do you all see there's two different things at place? The angel shows up and he says, name him Jesus, but he shall be called Emmanuel. Two different things going on. One is just this idea of, uh, of he, he will be called Emmanuel. Um, that's uh, not necessarily his proper name, but his title. Uh, the best I can do for an example of this uh, is probably fairly pathetic, but it's the best I can do, so we'll go with it anyway. Let's say there's a prophecy uh, about the birth of Michael Jordan, okay? And the prophet says, you shall call him the goat. And then, lo and behold, he's born, and did they, did, would the mom name him the goat? No. Why does she name him? Michael. Because Michael's his proper name, the goat describes his, his function, describes his title. Uh, and if you think LeBron's the goat, I just, I don't know where to go from here with that. Uh, th that's what the prophecy is saying. The, the angel shows up and says, name him Jesus. 
Uh, and, and the name Jesus, uh, it's, it's, it's probably the words that were uttered from their mouth in their language were Yeshua. Uh, that was his name, and that means Yahweh saves. Uh, so this description that is the name of Jesus means that he saves. He'll save his people from their sin. But Emmanuel, what does it mean uh, that he shall be called Emmanuel? And, and, and these tell us that Emmanuel, even the word itself, means God with us. We call that the incarnation, that Jesus is God with us. That Listen, if, if you've been around, you've been a Christian for a while, uh, you've grown up maybe in the church, and you've uh, read a, a lot of theological books, and you've grown up in the faith, I think sometimes um, there's a way in which the the absolute miracle of the incarnation has has just kind of grown a little normal, and maybe we lose some of the incredible miracle and wonder that we say Jesus is the incarnation of God, that he is God that come to be with us. No other religion has anything that even comes close to this idea that their God might come down to them to love them, serve them, submit themselves to the same difficulty and temptation as we are. And yet that's what we have in the incarnation. Could you imagine that it, the, the very, the, 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 you could just like wipe that from your memory. Okay, we just finished watching as a family Harry Potter, and I forget the spell, but they could use the wand and like pull the memories out. Of, if somebody could just pull the memory of, of that out of your brain, and, and, and you could experience for the first time hearing the truth that God was going to come be with his people, that the incarnation, Jesus was going to be Emmanuel, God with us, I, I think it would be staggering, wouldn't it? Just that truth that sometimes we become so... Uh, aware of, maybe inoculated by, we lose some of the miracle and the wonder that is the incarnation. No other religion comes close to saying their God would humble themselves enough to become one of them. The incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us, is bedrock to what we believe as Christians, bedrock to what the Bible teaches about Jesus. And those who knew Jesus best, I'm going to rattle through a couple different verses here. They're not on the screen, but just like this is not up for debate that Jesus is God in the flesh. Uh, the people in the first century that knew him best said things like this. John, who was his best friend, uh, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, uh, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He would say things like, The guy who was responsible for creating everything now has a body. I'm his friend. We hang out. We eat meals together. He's the Word of God in flesh. Uh, he would say later, quoting Jesus, Jesus would go as far as to say, Anybody that has seen me has what? Has seen the Father? That, that, that's, that's incarnation. That's Emmanuel, God with us. Um, the Apostle Paul over and over and over says it in Philippians 2. He says that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Later on, he would say in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the image of of the invisible God, Colossians 2, it says the whole fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Even Peter, the leader of the apostles, when he was making his great confession of who Jesus Christ was, when the Holy Spirit revealed it to him, he says, you are the Christ. He doesn't say you're the son of Mary and Joseph. He says, you're the son of the living God. The, the idea and the truth 
and the reality that Jesus is God with human flesh was prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 7, was realized in Matthew chapter 1, and it is a basic element of the hope that we have in the gospel. And eventually, Jesus making the claim that he was Emmanuel, God with us, would be the thing that got him killed, right? Like our, our culture is really is fine and okay with Jesus being a good teacher and a great person and a good friend and a good example. Uh, rarely do those types of people get crucified naked publicly. Like he wasn't crucified because he was a nice guy. He wasn't crucified because he was a great teacher. He was crucified because he claimed that he was God in the flesh, Emmanuel. So they, 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 they show up and they, they don't say name him Jesus. It says name, name him Jesus, call him Emmanuel. And I don't have time to chase this down, although I think it's very interesting. Uh, that God reserved the, the ability and the right to name Jesus. Uh, most of the time, uh, naming goes hand in hand with possession. If, if we possess something, we name it. Uh, you don't normally name things that you don't possess. Right, like you don't just walk into the hospital and just start naming babies. <laughs> like that is a Bill and that is a Susie. Why? Because they're not yours. Like, and if they're yours, it's such a special privilege to be able to name it. Uh, you don't go around naming your your neighbor's cats, right? Naming your neighbor's dogs. Why? Because they're not yours. When we moved to our house uh, a few years ago, um, there was a, a cat that just started showing up, and um, the, the, you know. It was a few months where this cat would show up every day and my kids would feed and water this till we realized, oh my gosh, I think this is our cat. We now own this cat, which was free, which is always fantastic, um, but we thought we should probably name him. So the kids named him Gobbler because he was so hungry he just gobbled up the food all the time. But like God reserved, he didn't let Mary and Joseph name him because they didn't possess this like one of their own children. He shall be called Emmanuel, name him Jesus, because he's God with us and he will save his people from their sins. Now, I want to I fast forward uh, to Isaiah chapter 9, because like the, that's just the, the incredible promise in Isaiah 7 that, that there's the Messiah is coming, born of a virgin, going to be a son, you shall call his name Emmanuel, and then Isaiah 9 basically is a commentary on what it means for the world and hopefully what it means for you that Jesus is God with us, okay? If you're there, seem a little bit tired today, let's say ready. Isaiah 9, verse, we're going to go starting in verse 2. So this is a little bit of a commentary, what it should mean for us that Jesus is Emmanuel, that he is God here with us. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Fast forward to verse 6. For to us, he says, because, all these things are true, because, for, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called again. These are descriptions of who he is and what he does, not a whole bunch of other legal names he's going to have. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Remember what the hearers are experiencing in life. Utter hopelessness and destruction and fear. And here comes this promise that unto them is going to be born uh, uh, this, this gift. The government will be upon his shoulder. Their government was in shambles. His name should be called Wonderful Counselor. Goodness, they needed one of those. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. At least seven things that you see in these verses about what it means that Jesus is Emmanuel, he's God with us. Number one, in verse two and three, you see um, that, that Isaiah is relating to this Messiah coming into the world, being a light coming into darkness. And when Jesus is, is, is preaching and living his ministry, what did he say? I am the light of the world. That the world is dark, the world is scared, the world is lonely, the world is confused, doesn't know morally which way is right, wrong, up and down. Jesus comes in as a light to the darkness to not just expose the darkness and the shadows and cause them to flee, but give direction and hope and the things that are always connected with this idea of light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. So if you're, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, that's a promise that you have the light of the world. You'll never walk in spiritual darkness. And, and if, you're, if you're not a Christian, maybe you've come in, literally, maybe you're curious, maybe there's some things going on in your life that you're looking or searching for something. Maybe you're confused, maybe you're sad, maybe you're broken, maybe you're hurt, maybe you're scared. Those are things that happen spiritually when we're spiritually in the dark. Jesus is the light of the world. That's what Isaiah was saying. First thing, Jesus is the light. He reveals the truth about us and our sin, about God and his righteousness. He reveals a path. He, he chases away the darkness. Number two, this is verse three. It, it says that he delivers joy. Okay, I'm going to ask you to say joy, but I want you to pretend that you're like having joy at the same time that you say. Can we do that? Don't be like, joy. Okay, are you ready? All right, one, two, three. Joy. Gosh, what, what an unbelievable word. How many of you like joy? If you're not raising your hand, goodness. I ha again, you might think, you know, LeBron's the goat. I don't know. Like, w w humanity was designed for this unique capacity and desire for joy. It, it goes all the way down to our DNA. Like, we're on a search our whole lives. We are on a search for joy. In the womb, a, a child will re recoil if their heel is pricked from pain. Why? That's not joyful. Like their DNA is even on a search to avoid things that are harmful and hurtful and to pursue joy. So why is it that so many people are struggling, even in our culture, in our context, with all of the unbelievable money and comfort and health care and things that we have, are people struggling to find joy because they're looking for it potentially in all the wrong places? N not only were humans designed and created for joy. Jesus is the key to joy. 
We got a whole Sunday set apart in Advent to talk about just the reality that, like, what does it say? Unto you will born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. He is going to be joyful. He brings good news of great joy to all people. If you want joy, Jesus is your man. Because the only joy found is wrapped up in knowing who he is and worshiping him rightly. And then he unlocks to us joy. We don't pursue joy. I think that's the wrong thing to pursue. You pursue Jesus and Jesus gives joy. That's how it works. Joy. Like verse 3, you've multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. If you're, if you're lacking joy, let me, let me invite you to consider that at some point there needs to be a connection in your heart to Jesus, and that is a key to joy. It says joy. Jesus delivers joy. He's the light of the world. He delivers joy, number three. He's a wonderful counselor. Some people will separate those and say he's wonderful and he's counselor, but it, it seems like the way it's phrased, those go together. It's saying one thing. He's just a wonderful counselor. Um, and and that word wonderful in the original language in, in Hebrew, it's, it's much more weighty than we might use, you know, that, that word. Uh, I think we kind of toss the word around maybe a little, uh, a little more flippantly than they would use it. Like that was a wonderful meal, right? Not how they would use it. Like this is spectacular, unthinkable, can't describe it type of wonderful counselor. And, and the term counselor would uh, normally be uh, used to describe somebody who was either a judge or a king that was responsible for setting the course of a nation and providing wise counsel. What is this saying? Jesus is a good counselor. That Jesus is going to give the best advice as the king for his people. That he speaks the truth and what he says is helpful and it's wise and he's a wonderful counselor. Goodness gracious how the people fearing the Assyrians attacking would have needed to hear that somebody's coming that is not a selfish, abusive leader but a good and a wonderful counselor. He keeps going, says mighty God, fairly self-explanatory, not just God, mighty God. This talks about a strong foundation worthy of building your life upon the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Everlasting Father of goodness. We've spent so much time over the years talking about this. What do fathers do? They make sure that children know that they belong, they, they bless, they provide, they protect what has God done for us in Jesus? Nothing short of adopting us into his family, calling us one of his children, being a father. Maybe you uh, have some wounds or some scars from your father. Over and over and over in the Bible are we reminded that Jesus is a father to the fatherless. He is the everlasting father. He will bless, provide, protect Make sure you know you belong, his kids forever. The Prince of Peace. This should have been like a 12-week sermon series now that I think about it, because each one of these are so potent. He's the Prince of Peace. Again, 7th century B.C., there was no peace. And this promise that this prince would come and he would be the Prince of Peace, and you see the rest of the Bible plays out that Jesus is going to set up a kingdom where his peace will know no end, where heaven is just the, the, like shalom. Peace describes heaven in and out forever, but then even in the midst of suffering and persecution that Jesus provides a peace internally that goes way beyond our circumstances. The Bible would call it a peace that surpasses understanding, that right now 
Jesus can be the Prince of Peace in your heart for whatever situation you're walking in. And someday his rule and his reign will rule in peace forever. And then he talks about him being a king. It talks a lot, of, I don't know if you saw this or not, but two or three different times in this text uh, does it talk about the government and Jesus being a king that is over a government. And all of God's people said, you're like, I don't know what to say because I'm confused because I normally don't think government and just rich blessings of peace. Okay, uh, goodness, I'm going to have to cut some of this out, but um, I, I, I do want to hit on this just for a moment uh, because there, there are earthly governments that go, the Bible says God has established governments and they are good things without government. Anarchy is not a good thing, has never produced anything good in human history. They're necessary to provide laws, to provide justice, to try to protect uh, the freedom of its citizens and let me, I'm going to step into opinion mode for just a second. My opinion is that we live in probably the, the best government structure man can come up with. Now, it's almost presidential election season again. It's, it comes around every six months, I feel like. Uh, this is my third one to preach through here in Midland, 16, 20, 24. And, and why is it that, I, I, I think, my opinion is that we've got the best kind of setup that humans can, can provide. Why are people not just walking around with just an unbelievable sense of gratitude and hopefulness and peace? Why? Because we, we, can, we can't expect earthly governments to provide what Jesus is going to provide one day for his people. Jesus is not only a prophet uh, or a priest, he is a king. And there's a promise that he will rule and reign over a government, over his people once and for all. That what we are looking for, we, we see shadows of it here and there. But we're longing for something none of us have ever seen, but in Christ we'll see someday. A benevolent, powerful king that rules over his people in peace and righteousness and justice. I'll read it again, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace... There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. That is coming. That is coming for those who are in Christ. I, I want to turn my attention just as we close to Hebrews chapter 4 um, because like the, the promise that Jesus is Emmanuel and all these different promises about what that means for us. What does it truly mean for us that Jesus is God in the flesh with us? Uh, and I would, I would concede to you that I, I doubt very many of you wake up in the morning terrified that the Assyrians are coming. Just wake up so distraught because you think you might end up in exile. Uh, but it sure may be true that many of you wake up and you are beat down and you're discouraged and you're scared. Uh, maybe there's turmoil in your heart. Maybe you've been slandered. Maybe you've been hurt deeply by somebody that should have loved you. Maybe you've been abandoned by somebody that should have been there for you. While we're not scared of the Assyrians, a lot of the same reasons that Emmanuel means hope exide inside our hearts. Anxiousness, fear, hurt. And Hebrews says it this way. He's talking about because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, he knows you better than you know yourself. He can sympathize better than any other God out there. Since then, we have a great high priest 
who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, we have a God who understands, who sympathizes, who you should go to when your life is difficult and when you're hurting. Why? Because he's not God up there. He's God down here. He's God in here. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. God, just I pray you would overwhelm us with a sense of awe that God, the maker of heaven and earth, humbled himself, came and invaded human history, lived a life where he was tempted in every way, withstood the temptation, died in our place, rose for our salvation, ascended to the throne of heaven to intercede for us forever. Would you overwhelm us with that sense? God, for people in this room that have been Christians a long time, I pray that you would overwhelm us again with the sense that God is with us. We have a God who understands. We have a God who has invited us in to bring the, the brokenness and the mess, and that you understand that you speak our language fully to God. You speak God's language fully to us. Okay, you are God with us. And I pray this morning that if anyone came into this room and does not have a relationship with you, God, through Jesus Christ, that you would draw them in, that you would help them to see that their longing for hope and peace and joy is only found in Jesus Christ, God, with us. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. We praise you. I'm grateful that you can speak things hundreds of years before they happen, and you're so incredibly precise because of that. We trust you. We love you. We thank you. I pray that in Jesus' name and all of God's people said. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.